Last week, I've neglected to tell you about something in verse 20, you know, where the Lord said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That was, of course, a reference to when people are getting together to pray about a church disciplinary action. Of course, we know the Lord is always in the midst of his people. He's even in the midst of me when I'm praying by myself because he indwells me. But that was a very subtle claim to deity. Did you pick up on that? I mean, that's talking about his omnipresence. He has to be everywhere. Wherever two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst of them. You know, sometimes he's so subtle in claiming who he is that we miss it. We don't even uh, realize it. All right, in the, um, we have been looking at what we have called the, uh, a sermon on being children of God. And so far, remember, this, is all, this was all precipitated by an argument among the Lord's own men as to who among them was to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And so far, we have talked about if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to be a servant, not a celebrity. We have talked about how we are to be stepping stones to others' spiritual growth and not stumbling blocks. And then last time we talked about the one who has strayed or the one who has you know, left the fold or the one who needs to be disciplined by the church body. We're to be sympathetic toward that one. We're not to despise him. We're not to scorn him. So we're to be sympathetic, not scorners, if we want to be great in the kingdom of God. Now today's subject is going to be on forgiveness. And the kind of forgiveness we're going to be talking about is a supernatural forgiveness. So if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you need to be a supernatural saint, not a selfish sinner, one who will not forgive. We're going to be talking about the subject of forgiveness. Now, in this last section, therefore, which is from verse 21 all the way to verse 35 of Matthew 18, this is lesson number 83 in your books. The Lord is teaching his men about another fundamental key to maintaining unity and peace within the family of God. And that key, the first key to having peace and unity in the family of God is humility. Remember, we always go back to that, don't we? Humility, humility, humility. Another fundamental key to having peace and unity in the family of God is forgiveness. In response to a question that was posed by Simon Peter, we'll see that in verse 21, Jesus spoke about the importance of forgiveness in the Christian's life. So the title for this lesson is, the key to family unity, forgiveness. It's the fourth and it's the last part. We end our sermon on being children of God today. This is our last lesson in this sermon. And... um, And we've called this fourth division, Supernatural Saints, Not Selfish Sinners. So let's begin by looking, first of all, at Matthew 18, verses 21 to 22. And this I've called Simon's Stretched Forgiveness. The Lord Jesus, everybody in Matthew 18? All right, the Lord Jesus, or first of all, I should say Peter. Now, it's amazing that Peter has actually been quiet for 20 verses. Pretty incredible for for Peter. But he couldn't stand it any longer. You know, Peter's mind was always spinning. It was always working, wasn't it? At least one thing we know about Peter is he was listening. He was listening. And and he and now he find, he interrupts the Lord after twenty verses and he has a question. It says in verse twenty one, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. 
Okay, having just heard the Lord teach about the necessary steps believers must take in regard to the discipline of an offending brother or sister, Peter became curious about the number of times a sinning brother or sister should be forgiven. How many times, if he offends me, how many times should I forgive him? He had heard the ex, you know, about the extent to which an offended believer should go to make reconciliation. Remember, it's the one who's been offended who's to go to the offender. He, said, he wondered how much about the extent to which an offended believer should go to make reconciliation with his offender. And now he wondered how many times the offended one should be permitted to, to offer forgiveness and um, Remember now, this is all about the fellowship of the family. This is about, I'm going to remind you of this over and over again, this whole section we're going to be reading today about forgiveness is with regard to the fellowship of those who are already in the family of God. Now, and I'll tell you why that's important later on, but Peter asked two questions. And, (laughs) typical of Peter, He made two mistakes. He asked two questions, and he made two mistakes. Now, his first question was, how oft shall my brother sin against me? You see, right away, Peter figured that any disciplining and any forgiveness that would need to be done would certainly need to be on the behalf of who? The other guy, his brother. Not not, certainly not him, not Peter. It would have to be on the behalf of the other one. We can all, we talked about this last week, we all have our blinders, don't we? We can all be so blind to our own weaknesses and our own sins and our own need for forgiveness. How would you have liked to have been poor Andrew (laughs) and grow up with a brother like Peter? Every time, I can just imagine, every time they had a quarrel as they were children, guess whose fault? It always was. It was always Andrew's fault, wasn't it? You know, Peter's saying, how many times should I forgive my brother? Of course, he's talking about his brother in Christ here, but <laughs> poor Andrew. And we see later on, of course, we won't get to this for several years, but later on, Peter displayed this same kind of attitude of self-righteousness on the night of the Lord's arrest. Remember when the Lord had predicted the very night of his arrest that all of his men would be offended of him that very night. And he said that when the shepherd was smitten, the sheep would the sheep would scatter. Well, of course, as soon as Peter heard that, his self-righteous pride took over, and he said, <laughs> he said, although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And, of course, we know what happened, don't we? He was, uh, he, he, he sinned the most of, of all of them. Yeah, he denied the Lord three times before the cock crew. I never know how to say that exactly. <laughs> The, the crow cocked. <laughs> anyway, Peter's second mistake was in suggesting a limit in his second question. What was his second question? He said, you know, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Till seven times? That was a mistake, too, because he was attempting to measure brotherly love and forgiveness. And he probably, in giving that amount, Peter probably thought that he was showing great generosity when he suggested forgiving his offender seven times. You know, back in our study on the Sermon on the Mount, and if you want to, if you miss the study on the Sermon on the Mount, I would just suggest that as your summer project because that is the most practical, convicting sermon I think the Lord ever gave. But back in the Sermon on the Mount, 
we had learned how the rabbis had misinterpreted so much of the Old Testament. And one of the things that they had twisted was the eye for the eye, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, provision for punishment that was given in the Old Testament. And they had taken that and they were using it to justify personal vengeance. Forgiveness to the Jew, to the Jew, the, the religious rulers, forgiveness was not necessarily seen as an important virtue by them. Just like the Romans did not think of meekness as an important virtue at all. They saw it actually as a weakness. So the Jews saw forgiveness as something that wasn't high up on their list of virtues. Now, they did, you know, they, they did... Um, Understand that the Old Testament permitted forgiveness and even recognized forgiveness in some situations. But the rabbis usually portrayed forgiveness as optional. However, when, when it was allowed, it was only, it was strictly limited to three, to the number of three times that any person could be forgiven for the same offense. Now, how they justify this, I don't know. One commentator said that they use the book of Amos as their justification to say, you know, God forgives, like, uh, three offenses, but the fourth, no, no more. And if you want to look, I'm not going to get into this, but if you want to look at Amos 1.3, Amos 1.6, Amos 1.9, you'll see where they get that from, but it's, it's wrong. <laughs> you don't just forgive someone three times and that's it. But here's some quotes. These are in your books, and you can read the names of these rabbis. But one rabbi said, quote, He who begs forgiveness from his neighbor must not do so more than three times. Another rabbi said, quote, If a man commit an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time... They do not forgive him. End of quote. I don't know about you guys, but boy, would I be in big trouble. I would be in big trouble in just one day, probably. <clears throat> Peter had heard the Lord's teaching. Remember, at this point in time, he's already heard the Lord's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5.20 had said that except one's righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, he would in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. So Peter probably thought that Jesus was going to be very impressed by his generous suggestion of seven, since that definitely exceeded, you see, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, who said you can only forgive somebody three times. What Peter did is he took, the, he doubled their number, and then he just threw in one more for, for good measure. <laughs> and he came to, the, to, you know, he rounded it up to that perfect number seven. Poor Peter. One thing about Peter is that he over and over again shows to us that man's ways are not God's ways. And that man's thoughts are not God's thoughts. Every time the poor guy had a great idea, thought he had a great idea, wrong. Remember when he, uh, the Lord had said that he must needs go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the religious rulers and that he must even die? And Peter said, oh, no, Lord, this shall never be wrong. Man's thoughts are not God's thoughts. And Jesus said to him, get thee behind me, Satan. And then on another occasion, Peter thought again, he had a great idea. There he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah, and he thought, oh, wouldn't it be a great idea to set up some tabernacle, some booths, and we could just party up here and talk and just have a great old time? Things got really serious, because that time he was corrected for, by God the Father. 
And then on another, well, here we have this occasion here where he, I'm sure he thought he was being very magnanimous, and again, he's going to be corrected. I think he'll be stu- he was probably stunned when he heard the Lord's answer to his proposal of seven times of forgiveness. But on another occasion, again, on the night of the Lord's arrest, when the Lord girded himself with a towel and he got a wash basin and he washed the disciples' feet, he got to Peter. And Peter said, never, Lord, you're not going to, you would not, I'll never allow you to wash my feet. Again, he was wrong, wasn't he? He was wrong. I mean, we just can't try to, the problem with Peter was that he was still thinking in terms of human fallen flesh. He was still thinking just exactly like the religious rulers. He was thinking in measurable limited terms of the law and he was not thinking in the unlimited immeasurable terms of grace of grace and supernatural love you see it's the law that keeps records grace doesn't keep records so in response we would all i mean the natural mind i should say not we because we shouldn't have the natural mind anymore should we if we're in christ i hope you all are i hope you've all been born again into the family of god but in response to jesus's words about unlimited forgiveness which is what he is really saying when he says 70 times 7 which is 490 which is um was a common jewish expression really of just saying unlimited all right in response to that the natural mind immediately protests what seems to be an unreasonable standard. You know, unlimited forgiveness? Shouldn't forgiveness have a limit? I mean, common sense, doesn't common sense seem to suggest that repeat offenders should not be granted pardon indefinitely? But remember, this is another reason I have to keep reminding ourselves, remember, we are not talking about criminal offenses. I, for one, absolutely believe that a murderer should not be loosed so that he can go out and murder someone else. Or that a, a, a rapist should be, my husband served on grand jury about a year ago. For a whole year, he was on grand jury. And he said that 99% of the people that they reviewed um, were repeat offenders. So we're not talking about criminal offenses. We are talking about offenses within the family of God, offenses that are on a personal level. You know, we might ask, well, when does grace become gullibility? You know, how many times should I just keep forgiving? And I'm looking pretty stupid here. But um, 70 times 7 is 490. That, that is ba- actually speaking of unlimited forgiveness. Nobody can keep count of such a high number. Well, I guess you could if you really wanted to, but you'd be missing the Lord's whole point here. But that is his point, you know, that nobody can keep count of such a high number. Keeping count has absolutely nothing to do with true forgiveness, supernatural, God kind of forgiveness. You see, if you truly, sincerely, honestly, from the heart, forgive somebody, then it cannot be held against them. So when they offend against you the second time, that second offense is really the first again because you've wiped the slate clean from the first offense. Do you see what I'm saying? So you can't, you can't there's, there should be no forgiveness. True forgiveness permits no such scorekeeping. 
The Lord's 70 times 7 sets the standard so high that it becomes pointless to try to keep an account of the injuries that we have borne from a brother or sister in Christ. But that is fitting because the sort of love Christians are to exemplify is love that does not take into account a wrong suffered. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter? Read that. So the person who keeps track of wrongs, whether he keeps track of them, you know, writes them out, and believe it or not, this is what I did as a newlywed. (laughs) I used to write out, I remember, I was not, I, I became a Christian right before I was married, and I was not discipled, and I didn't know any of the Lord's teaching, I didn't know the Bible, but every offense that Frank had, I would keep a record of it, so at the end of each day, I could remind him of all his offenses. <laughs> now, 31 years later, I, I can honestly tell you, I don't do that anymore, because I don't have enough paper. <laughs> But, you know, the person who keeps track of wrongs, whether written or mental, now we can keep track of them mentally too, can't we, in our head, thinking that, okay, now when I get to 490, yay, I'll be set free. I don't have to forgive that person anymore. Finally got there. (laughs) That person has utterly missed the point of Jesus' words here. The Lord was not setting a numerical limit on forgiveness. He was simply taking Peter's number of seven and multiplying it by 70. For all practical purposes, he made it impossible to tabulate offenses the way that Peter was thinking. In effect, he, the Lord Jesus was eliminating any limit on forgiveness whatsoever. I told you before, 70 times 7 was a Jewish expression which meant unlimited. You don't, you know, it's just too high of a number to even try to keep track of. Now, you know the number 7 biblically symbolizes what? perfection and completeness. So what the Lord was saying was that a Christian's forgiveness, just like God's forgiveness, is to be both complete, complete forgiveness. You don't hold back a little bit. Complete forgiveness and perfect forgiveness. That means perfect means it's like God's forgiveness. So if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you are to be a forgiving person. We should not just, I mean, it should almost become like breathing. You know, we just forgive, we forgive, we forgive. It, we not only forgive the first offense, we forgive the 100th offense, we forgive the 1 millionth offense. Uh, with just as much mercy and just as much love as God forgave us. There's really no better way for a Christian to demonstrate Christ's likeness than to be a forgiving Christian. You know that? Who was our example once again? Jesus. Do you know what man did to him? Do you know what you and I did to him by our sins on that cross? Do you know the shame that he went through on the cross? Do you know the suffering? There's no way. Every now and then, again, we get a wave of what he went through in our minds. And it brings me to tears when I really, it's, it's almost unfathomable to grasp what he went through. Well, it is. Because we can't even imagine what he went through just being separated from God his Father for the first time in all of eternity, first and only time. But the physical suffering, I can't even imagine. You know, if I, I stub my toe, uh, I'm in, in unbelievable pain and let everybody know about it. You know? 
<laughs> pitiful, pitiful. Um, but the, the physical suffering, the, the emotional suffering that he went through, the mental anguish that he went through, and of course the spiritual and the social, everything about it was unbelievable. And yet, what did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think that's why the penitent thief, after he heard the Lord say that and watched him, that's why he entered into paradise with him that very day. And I believe that's why the Roman centurion at the, the feet of the Lord says, surely this was the Son of God. So if we want to be Christ-like, we need to be forgiving Christians. Think about Stephen, the first martyr. He said the same thing, didn't he? Just like his Lord. And the most perfect type of all the Old Testament that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ was Joseph. In more ways was Joseph like Jesus than any other any other example. And did he forgive his brothers for what they did to him? Absolutely. And it was a complete and perfect forgiveness. So, um, why, why are we Christ-like when we forgive and forgive and forgive, have unlimited forgiveness? It's because forgiveness is unnatural. It is unnatural to human nature. People everywhere, and now people can say they forgive, but without Christ's spirit within them, it's a verbal thing, and it's a hold-on-to thing, and it's impossible to truly, truly forgive without the Lord's help. People everywhere throughout time have always sought, found it far easier to seek revenge than to offer forgiveness, you know, to return evil for evil. Then what are we to do? to return good for evil. To return good for evil, that just goes against um, the natural man. But again, as we discussed in the Sermon on the Mount, God's standard for righteousness is, you know, it's just the totally the total opposite. He said, you have heard it said, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But he said, but I say unto you, if someone smite you on the cheek, what are you to do? Turn the other one. Remember, he said that um, we are to love even our enemies. And we are to bless them that curse us. And we're to pray for those who despitefully use us. And that's speaking about our enemies. So what do you think we're supposed to do for those who are brothers and sisters in, you know, in the Lord? Those who are within the, the fold, our own family. Sin builds barriers. Sin always builds barriers between people even God's people, and nothing but forgiveness can break those barriers apart. Humility and, hu and forgiveness breaks apart barriers. The primary reason Christians of all people on the earth, you know, if anybody should be able to be a forgiving person, if anybody should be a forgiving person, who should it be? The Christian, because we have been forgiven so much by God, forgiven our sin. Uh, Ephesians, if anybody should be forgiving, therefore it should be the Christian. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And it says in Colossians 3.13 that we should be forbearing of one another and forgiving of one another. And Paul said that if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now, on another occasion, we haven't gotten to this yet in our Life of Christ study, but over in Luke 17, in verses 3 and 4, Jesus said these words. He said, Take heed 
to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. That sounds like our lesson last week, right? If your brother offends you, go to him. He says, if, if your brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, the Lord said, Thou shalt forgive him. End of quote. That's in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Again, here, when he said these words, the point is not to set a numerical limit to, you know, seven times in one day. But his point was to underscore the freeness and the frequency with which we are to forgive. Again, the number seven that he used in Luke 17 represents complete forgiveness and and, um, perfect forgiveness. If you want to think of forgiveness in terms of Fs, I thought it would be good to remember forgiveness. We are to freely forgive and we are to frequently forgive. Now, someone, when they think about that verse, Luke 17, 3 and 4, someone might ask, who in the world would commit the same offense with the same person seven times in one day and then profess, you know, go to that person, profess repentance after each occasion? But here's the point that the Lord was making. This kind of behavior is exactly how we sin against who? exactly how we sin against God. You know, we sin, we might get up in the morning and and have just a bad thought, uh, say a bad word. Um, You know, remember now, there's even sins of omission, not doing something that we should do. So we might sin in the morning or, uh, you know, whatever, some kind of sin, and we go before the Lord and we confess that sin. And then before 12 o'clock, guess what? We, yeah, somebody called us on the phone and we've gossiped or something like that. And we have sinned against God and we turn around again. We ask him to, to uh, forgive us. And does he? Yes, he does. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then maybe before 2 o'clock, whoops, done it again. Would it be easy to sin seven times in one day for us? Absolutely. I'm glad I don't keep record of my own sins like I used to keep them of my husband's sins. But And, and anyone who has ever been in bondage to a sinful habit certainly can understand what this routine is like. But the question is, does God forgive us under similar circumstances? Absolutely. And I'm so glad he does. You know, if God only forgave 490 times, I don't, I wouldn't have gotten very far. I might have been three years old and that was my limit. (laughs) Or maybe even sooner, probably even sooner. But God does forgive like this. And since his forgiveness is what sets the criterion by which you and I are to forgive, what may seem at first like an impossible and an unattainable standard you know, unlimited forgiveness. In fact, that standard turns out to be great news, wonderful news for anyone who has ever needed to seek the forgiveness of God for repeat offenses. So Jesus is teaching that forgiveness we extend to others should be as boundless as the mercy of God that we want and we expect for ourselves. 
And that shatters all the limits that anyone would try to place on human forgiveness. Now remember, all along in this sermon, Jesus has been teaching his followers, his men, his disciples, how they are to relate to one another as children of God. And all the while, he probably has this same little child on his lap. He taught us that we are to be as humble as little children, both in our attitude toward God and in our attitude toward one another. He taught us that we are, to, that we are protected and cared for as little children because of our relationship to the holy angels, to himself, and to God the Father. He taught us that we are to be disciplined. We didn't like that one, but we are to be disciplined like little children. And now he also adds the fact that we are to be forgiven as little children. Now, unless somebody is really sick, mentally sick, most people do not find it at all difficult to forgive little children. Right? Little children. I mean, you're, you're pregnant, okay? I used this example yesterday with a, another pregnant girl sitting on the second row. And I said, wouldn't, wouldn't it be ridiculous if, if she got upset with a little baby within her every time that baby kicked her? You know, wouldn't forgive the baby because of all the moving and you can't breathe very well. And it's, I can see you're in pain sitting there because she is due pretty soon, right? <laughs> I remember the first time in the hospital when I went to change my son's diaper and he got me. He got me right in the face. <laughs> and the nurse was standing there laughing. You know, I didn't, I didn't know by experience about those sort of things. So wouldn't it be silly if I didn't forgive my son when, you're, when your children sin? Or have you ever had your little one kick you in the face when you're there playing with them, you know, and they're kicking. Have you ever been kicked in the face when they have a shoe on? You know, but it would be, it just would not be natural, especially with your own little children, not to forgive them. And we, why do we do this? Because we understand that they're doing things in ignorance and in innocence. We understand that they're immature and they're inexperienced about things. So we find it easy to be long-suffering with little children and we tolerate their misbehavior with patience and with endless forgiveness especially if those little ones are ours and we might not be so patient with somebody else's little ones but we're surely patient with our own we find it difficult to hold a grudge against a small child or to allow a root of bitterness to build up within us toward them because of what they have done to us. I mean, we almost think of that as being ludicrous. It's unnatural to hold a spirit of revenge against a child. And you see, it's exactly this analogy that the Lord Jesus is stressing in this part of his sermon. We are to treat our brothers and sisters, his, his little ones, we're all his little ones, with the same kind of patience, the same kind of genuine, endless, unlimited, freely given Free, uh, forgiveness with which we would forgive our own little ones. Because in the eyes of God, that's what we, are, we all are. We are his little ones. We are his little children. And actually to him, we behave just like little children behave to us. Well, as he often did, the Lord went on to give a parable to further illustrate his teaching here on the importance of forgiveness. So let's look now at the parable of the wicked servant, and we find this in verses 23 to 35. In this parable, before I read it, let me just say this by way of interpretation, we will see that the servant, the wicked servant, in the parable represents the sinner who is forgiven by the king who represents 
the Lord God, right. And the fellow servants that we will see in this parable represent other believers. Okay, so now let's look at it. The Lord said in verse 23, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him. Remember how we talked about loosing up in verses uh, 18? Yeah, verse 18. He loosed him and forgave him the debt. Verse 28, but the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence, and he laid hands on him, and that wasn't to heal him, (laughs) and took him by the throat, saying, pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Sound like familiar words? Look at verse 26. The same servant, had, the other servant had used those same words. And it says in verse 30, and he would not, he would not have patience with his fellow servant, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry. They were grieved and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord After that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredest me. Shouldest not thou also have compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts... Forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. If you underline in your Bible, underline the words from your heart. You know, it's one thing to say you forgive somebody from your lips, but it's an altogether different matter to say, to actually mean it from your heart. So we are to forgive from our hearts. All right, Jesus began his parable here by stating that the kingdom of heaven, and by the way, this is one of three parables the Lord gives to us with regard to debts. Now, debts are a really good illustration of what? Sin, exactly. Just like leprosy is a picture of sin. Well, debts are a really good illustration of sin. So this is one of three parables the Lord used uh, with regard to debts. He said that the, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king who went to settle his outstanding accounts. He turned to his books and he was going to go through his outstanding accounts. And he called in, I would imagine, his, the servant who owed him the most. I can't imagine any other servant ever owing this amount, uh, much money to the king. Now, this king had to have been some kind of king because what this man owed him was so big of an amount. Obviously, he owed him, so he had borrowed the money from the king, right? Or he, he was a tax collector, and this should have been revenue that went to the king. But for the king to keep operating his kingdom without what this one man owed him, indicates that this king was very, very wealthy. 
I mean, he, he was some kind of king. Um, because you, this amount would have put another king into the poorhouse. He couldn't have kept his military up. He couldn't have kept up his government. Anyway, 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents was an unbelievably large sum of money for one individual to owe. A talent was the largest um, monetary amount in the Roman world. It was the largest measure of money back in that day. 10,000 talents was equal to 17 years' wages for 10,000 men. So 10,000 men working for 17 years equals 10,000 talents. That is a lot of money. Now, commentators, are they vary on what that amount would be in today's world, in today's economy. Somewhere from, million, they say, millions and millions to even up to like a billion dollars. It was just an unfathomable, unfathomable amount for a personal debt. But to put it into perspective, records in the first century reveal that the total annual revenue collected by the Roman government from the entire land of Israel, that's all four provinces, averaged each year about 900 talents. So what this would be equivalent to would be the amount of revenue collected by Rome for all of Israel for 11 years. And they said that Solomon's temple, you know, Solomon built a a magnificent temple for the Lord. And the whole thing was overlaid in gold. It had gold all throughout it. Gold, gold, gold. Well, they say that all of the gold of Solomon's temple was equivalent to just over 8,000 talents. And we're talking here about 10,000 talents. So obviously, now this is a parable. This is a story. I don't think anybody could owe this much without already have been in prison. But anyway, um, the Lord was doing this to show that this, he was giving this story to show that the debt was so large that there was no way this man could ever, ever, ever pay it back. You know, the sale of the man into slavery, the sale of his wife and his children into slavery, and the, the sale of all of his possessions would not even have covered the smallest fraction of what was owed. Nonetheless, it was the king's right to demand this, that the man be put in slavery and his family and everything sold. Well, realizing his hopeless predicament, the man, the servant, fell down. And wouldn't you too? He fell down prostrate before the king. He, he, you know, he went to... um, to, an, to a, a more than usual position when going before a king. And most people might go before a king and um, say, oh Lord, or, or king live forever, <laughs> whatever their common expression was. But this man, it says he fell down and he, you know, he worshipped him. He fell prostrate before him. And he begged for what? And it, yeah, patience. He begged for an extension of time. Which was really, you know, this man was really a wicked servant before he's even declared a wicked servant because he had obviously mishandled that money. I don't know what he did with the money that he had borrowed from the king or that was owed to the king, but he was not a good steward of his money. Maybe he invested and didn't had poor investments. I don't know what he did with it, but he was, he was a scoundrel. 
to have owed the king that much money. But he begs for time. The king, being a very wise king, we'll see, he was a wise king, he was a just king, he was a good king, he was a a merciful king, but he, he knew that even a lifetime would not be sufficient time for this man to pay off all that was owed. In the economy of that day, a man, one man, would have to work 20 years just to earn one talent. And he owed 10000 so he'd have to live a long, long time to pay that back. In, in other words, it was absurd. He could never pay it back. So to ask for an extension of time was ludicrous. So the servant's condition was utterly hopeless. His only hope lay in the goodness and the compassion of the king. So he pled for mercy. And... Um, Notice he didn't offer any defense, because there was none. He didn't offer any excuse, which is good. He didn't say, you know, well, here's what I've done with it, and, you know, it'll, it'll come back, just give it some more time. I've invested it, and in a few years we'll have double our money. He offered no excuse whatsoever. He, he, he knew he was in utter, abject despair, and, um, and he was just dependent on the king. But because the king was of a compassionate nature, he released the, king, the uh, servant totally from his debt. He wiped his ledger sheet clean. He loosed him. And it tells us in verse 27 that the man was utterly free to go on his way. I mean, that's incredible. Now, you think the man would be so happy and so thankful that he'd just go out of there leaping with joy and want to be kind and merciful to everybody he met, right? Wrong. (laughs) Uh, But what we have so far in this part of the parable is a picture, of course, of God's merciful and complete forgiveness of those who are citizens of his kingdom, those who have been born again, the children of God. The unpayable debt that the servant owed the king represents the unpayable debt of sin for sin that every man owes to God. So the the servant represents as a debtor the unbeliever who stands in utter, absolute spiritual bankruptcy before God and whose only hope lies in his God's willingness to, to forgive us by his grace and his mercy. Now, as we interpret this parable, again, I remind you, let's remember that parables are not given by the Lord in order to present every single aspect of a doctrinal issue. If we, if we use this parable that way, we, it almost would look like this man lost his salvation or that purgatory was a too, true doctrine. But parables do not necessarily teach doctrine. You can't carry a, a parable to, to um, every aspect of a doctrine of the Scripture. For example, the, the finished work of Christ is not, is not given to us in this parable as the means of substitutionary payment for man's sin. Uh, The purpose of this parable is to illustrate what? What is the subject matter for our lesson? Right. He's using this parable in order to teach his men and you and I about the matter of forgiveness, especially forgiveness among believers, between believers. And it is really limited to that primary idea. So let's keep that in mind. Remember that the Lord spoke this parable in direct response to Peter's question about forgiving a brother. And Peter's question, in turn, had been triggered by the Lord's teaching about discipline within the church body. 
discipline among those in the family of God. So keep in mind that this parable is about believers. Peter was a believer, and he had referred to forgiving a brother, and the whole sermon, from the very beginning, this whole sermon is focused on the Lord's little ones, who we already learned are not only literal little children, but also those who believe in God. And that's going to be important to remember when we get to the end of this parable. All right, what happened next seems almost inconceivable. But actually, the truth of the matter is that each of us is just as guilty of doing, to various degrees, exactly what this forgiven servant did. What does it tell us he did? Well, he went out, and it almost seems like he went directly to somebody who owed him money, Instead of being thankful and, like I said, leaping and jumping around and forgiving everybody he met, he went directly to one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred pence. Now, do you know how much a hundred pence is? Not very much at all. Now, some commentators say $15, some say $17, but it was one one millionth of what he, this man, had owed the king. And when he found this fellow servant, he, I mean, he became violent. He just became, it's ridiculous. He grabbed the guy by the throat and he began to try to squeeze the money out of him. He began to choke him, <laughs> demanding to be paid at once. He refused to show any mercy whatsoever toward his fellow servant, even though the man's plea, you know, when the man said, give me time, um, in verse uh, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. That should have triggered in the servant's mind and was choking him. Oh, those are the same words I just used with the king. And that, if nothing else, that should have reminded him of his own previous situation before the king. And it should have prompted him to extend mercy toward this man. But what we find is absolutely no sympathy whatsoever from this creditor, even though the debt owed him could have easily been repaid. That man could have repaid that debt in very little time. So with unthinkable cruelty, the same man who had been so generously forgiven for so much refused to forgive his fellow servant, and instead, what did he have done to him? Throw him in prison. Throw him into debtor's prison. Now, how was he going to get paid back that way? (laughs) You know, if the man is in prison, that's Ridiculous. Well, think for a moment about the situation that this parable presents. The debt owed to this man by his fellow servant was actually a legitimate debt. And point, he did, the first servant, did have a rightful claim on what was owed to him. So technically, he was completely within his what? (laughs) Rights. We all like to, people today like to talk about rights. So he was within his rights to demand repayment. But morally, don't we just, as we hear this story, don't we just um, shudder? Don't we, don't we morally and naturally and rightfully recoil at this terrible behavior? You know, there are some things that are legally okay to do, but they certainly aren't morally right. You know, we, we recoil at this. We shudder at this kind of behavior because it is wrong. It is wrong morally. We see his act as wrong because it is. The first servant's very freedom that he had been set free by the king was the result of an incomprehensible act of mercy that had been shown to him. So therefore, did he not have a duty, a responsibility to love mercy 
and to extend it to others as he had received mercy. You see, the undeserved forgiveness that he had received from the king should have made him even more profoundly grateful. To whom much is forgiven, that one should be even more grateful. Like the, the woman who was forgiven for her wickedness and she was, she was uh, there at the Lord's feet. You know, her tears were washing his feet. You know, to whom much is forgiven, there's much more love. And, uh, and, and this, that, that forgiveness should have been, made this man more grateful and um, more merciful. The extra, extraordinary mercy that he had received should have been the thing that drove him to then extend mercy to someone else, especially someone who owed him such a pittance compared to what he owed. But instead, he was obsessed with gaining that tiny amount owed him by his fellow servant. His actions betrayed a lack of gratitude. It was as if he had already forgotten the great mercy that had been shown to him. Actually, his action here with his fellow servant was an insult to the king. It was an insult to the king, really, because it was like he had forgotten what the king had done for him. The forgiven servant's behavior was grotesque. We would all say this is just awful. But this is exactly, and the, the Lord was exaggerating here, but this is exactly the point he wanted to make with his men. He purposely was portraying this servant, his, his behavior as grotesque and as unreasonable and as totally irrational. He was emphasizing, you see, the absurdity of an unforgiving Christian. It's absurd. It's irrational. It's grotesque. It's an insult to the king of kings for a Christian to be unforgiving. That's his point. If we are truly saved, it means that we, just as this servant in the parable, we have been for freely forgiven of all our sin indebtedness. You know, all of us have sinned and fallen far short of the glory of God. It would be like somebody trying to, to get a running start and try to jump across the ocean. You know, some people may be longer broad, broad, broad jumpers than others, and somebody might get a little bit further, but <laughs> it'd be ridiculous. Nobody could even probably get past the waves, you know, the first initial waves that come in. Nobody could cross the ocean. That's how far we have fallen short of the glory of God. Some might get a little further than others, but nobody can even begin to make it. <clears throat> we owe so much to God. And yet, you know, he's wiped our slate clean if we've asked him in mercy to forgive us. Yet how often do we turn around and we despise our fellow brothers or sisters in Christ because of some offense that they have made against us? You know what it looks like from God's perspective? It looks like one one millionth or even more, one one infinity billionth of what he forgave us. How often do we get angry within, like this man, you know, want to choke somebody <laughs> because of what somebody has said or done against us, you know, that has directly or indirectly directly offended us? How often do we hold bitterness within and refuse to let go of a grudge that we have against somebody? How often do we fail to forgive completely and perfectly? 
just like God has forgiven us. You know, as bizarre and as cruel and as foolish as the servant's attitude and behavior toward his fellow man appears to be in this parable, it is equally as bizarre and cruel and foolish for Christians who have been given forgiven an immeasurably great debt by, debt by God to be unwilling to forgive a mere pittance <clears throat> owed us by a fellow servant, right? You see the perspective? You know, when we see things in perspective, it really changes it, doesn't it? All right, well, when other fellow servants heard what had happened, they were understandably irate. Now, this would be comparable to what we talked about last week. These other fellow servants would represent the two or three witnesses. You know, if somebody is unrepentant in an offense, uh, you go to two or three, and they would even maybe represent the, other, the, the whole church body. These are fellow believers who've heard about this, and, um, and, and it's understandable that they were irate. And the good thing is that who did they go to? They went directly to the king. They were like the ones who, you know, two or three are gathered together. They're, they're, they're praying about the situation. They bring their petition directly to the king. And when he hears about it, he's wroth. He, he's very upset about it. <clears throat> but they went, they, they went, they took the situation with their unrepentant brother to the, the Lord King so that he would chasten and purge him until he could be brought back into a righteous and reconciled relationship with both himself and with his fellow believers. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when the Lord brought him, when the Lord King brought this servant before him, he said, Oh, thou wicked servant. I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest of me, shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee. You see, he called him a wicked servant because his sin of unforgiveness was a wicked sin. Sin is wicked, isn't it? But unforgiveness, especially in a Christian, is even more wicked, because the Christian has not only, you know, he's experienced God's redeeming, I mean, God's forgiveness, but he also has within him the power to forgive his fellow servant because he has within him the Holy Spirit to enable him to forgive supernaturally. So, so he's without excuse for his behavior. The one who will not forgive is without excuse. Well, because God is always moved with anger at sin, especially at the unconfessed, unrepentant sin of his own children, he handed over this servant to who? To the tormentors. You notice he didn't throw him into prison. The man has already been released from prison. I mean, he could have been thrown into prison, which could represent hell at the beginning. But... Um, and, and um, that, that pictures our relief, that we are not sent to hell. We're, we're completely forgiven. But here, he doesn't throw him into prison, as he had every right to do. And if he had done that, that would look like, although we can't take a parable to teach doctrine, but it would look like the man either lost his salvation or that, um, that maybe purgatory was true or that salvation was de- dependent on, uh, that it was conditional. You know, if the man didn't live right after he'd been saved, uh, you know, he would lose. Well, again, I guess that would go back to losing your salvation. But um, instead, he didn't throw him into prison. He handed him over to tormentors until he should repay 
all that was owed. Now, does that mean that he had to stay under the tormentors until he paid back the original debt of 10,000 talents? No, that was, that was wiped clean. He didn't owe 10000 What he needed to be turned over to the tormentors until he repaid was now the sin of unforgiveness toward his fellow brother. Oh, all right, I need to just skip them some things here. But the original debt the man owed was uh, totally unpayable, so reassigning him that debt would have made no sense at all. He was completely without resources to pay it, and especially if he was thrown in prison, he could never have repaid it. Now, remember, the Lord had just been talking about the situation of church discipline with regard to a sinning believer. If that believer, you know, after he'd been approached on three different occasions, first by the one he offended, then by two or three witnesses, and then by the whole church, if he refused to confess and repent, he remember he was to be thrown out of the fellowship. He was to be treated as what? a heathen or as a publican until he was willing to humble himself and admit his guilt and turn from his sin. You see, God doesn't chasten his children out of meanness. He didn't have that one thrown out of the church fellowship out of meanness. And he doesn't have this one turned over to the tormentors because of meanness. Why does God chasten his own little ones? Because he loves them. He does it for their own good, our own ultimate good. um, I've already said that. All right. When Christians forget how greatly they have been forgiven by God and they refuse to extend such forgiveness to their fellow believers, then the Lord God, you see, will turn them over to their tormentors for chastening purposes. Now, who are some of the tormentors? A person who just cannot forgive, even after, I mean, a Christian who cannot forgive a fellow Christian might suffer from sleeplessness, guilt, bitterness, uh, loses the joy of his salvation. He may lose the, the peace of God, not his peace with God, but peace of God. There are many tormentors. Some of the most miserable Christians I have ever known are those who just hang on to their unforgiving spirit. They're under torment. But God is doing this out of a heart of love because he wants that one. Remember we said a prayer for somebody, a sheep who has strayed or a sheep who just won't admit what he's done wrong? The, the, the best thing to do is to pray for that one to be so miserable that finally in their misery they'll return to the Lord. They'll confess, they'll repent, and they'll return to being in fellowship with God and with their fellow man. So Peter had asked the Lord for a measuring rod of justice when it came to forgiveness, but the Lord had told him in both his direct words to him and by way of this parable. He said, basically, Peter, forget the measuring rod. Just forgive and forgive and forgive again. Forgive until it is such a natural part of your life that you find that you are just, you know, totally free to love and to enjoy life to its fullest. You know, to truly forgive. And some of us have had terrible, terrible offenses committed against us. And it's hard to forgive. But when you are able to forgive with God's kind of forgiveness. Do you know what? I don't think there's any greater evidence to your own spirit that you truly are a child of God. 
because it's not anything you can do in your own flesh. It truly, truly takes a supernatural saint to be able to forgive the way the Lord Jesus Christ forgave us on the cross.